Deja vu. It's a fun word to say. It's an easy word to misspell. Deja vu, what is it? Well, depends on who you ask. We've all felt it at some point. We go somewhere or something happens, and it seems a lot like something else we've seen before. Some people believe this is past lives speaking to us. Others believe it's spirits speaking from somewhere else. Well, in fact, it actually is evidence that our designer, our creator, has made us able to detect patterns. That's a good thing. We detect patterns because it helps us categorize what we're seeing. It helps us put things in a specific category to make sense of it. It's how God made us to think about the world. So what is deja vu? Well, it's where something happens and it reminds you of something else. Yogi Berra, the uh, incredible genius and intellect, says, it's like deja vu all over again. He's known for his rather pithy phrases. But deja vu is this idea that things just kind of seem the same. I once had a history teacher tell me that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, meaning that it's very similar to other things that we've seen. Um, And so today, if you've been around for a little bit, uh, you were here with us a few weeks ago, this passage looked very familiar. As a matter of fact, the very first thing I did when I was studying it was I put the two passages side by side, and that would be the feeding of the 5,000, and now this feeding of the 4,000, and they're almost identical. Same words, same structure. There's a few differences. The numbers are all different. We'll talk about that here in a minute. The outcome is all different. So I'm left with the question, why include this? I mean, if we're going to build to something... Wouldn't we do the 4,000 first and then the 5,000 because it's 1,000 better? Or, or maybe we just go, we'll just do the 5,000 because it's awesome and the four just seems a little less. So why is this included here? Some scholars have decided it's included by accident. You know, Matthew was like, not sure, so he did both. No, I don't, I don't buy that. Because there's an actual reason for this. And the reason is, is very clear as we just unpack the text very basically. And so we're going to do that today. We're going to look at this lesser feeding, and we're going to figure out what exactly is being communicated here. See, remember, Matthew is a master teacher, and he's got the God of the universe, the Holy Spirit, telling him, put these things in here, and they're there for a reason. So let's see if we can figure out what they are. So here's our main idea for today. Jesus is the compassionate healer of all. Jesus is the compassionate healer of all. So this is what we're going to get to. But in order to get there, we got we to see our, th- we have three points this week. I don't always have three points, but we're having three this week, because it wouldn't be a good Baptist sermon without three points. But the three points are in our text, and we're just going to walk right through them. The first one is Jesus heals all their illnesses. Jesus heals because of his compassion, or because he is compassionate. And then finally, Jesus heals our illness. So this is the, the kind of the big picture, and these will come back up here in a moment. But the thing we're, we're looking at here is that no matter where anyone is, no one is too distant from the Lord for him to reach. We've seen this already. Last week, we had Jesus go up into Tyre and Sidon, which is one of those, those phrases that you're like, I, I could be, is that, where is that, in Idaho? Um, we, it's not a place we're familiar with. 
but it's basically the north. It's the place where the Jews would not be found. And Jesus goes to the ends of the earth and meets a Canaanite woman. A Canaanite is the, the, the group of people that were in the land known as the promised land before the Israelites took it over. They are the sworn enemies. We would always also call her a Gentile, another term that means non-Jewish. And so this lady that he meets, we saw last week, he pulls out of her some amazing faith. He uses her as an example of this is what faith should look like. So already the disciples are kind of on their heels going, wait a second, you know, the only two people that you have said have great faith are outsiders. They're Gentiles. It was a Roman centurion, about as far away as you can get, and a Canaanite woman, probably as equally far as you can get. And yet Jesus brings them out. And this is an entire story meant to go all together. Really, if we were going to do this text this week justice, we would have gone right into it last week because these all go together. Because there's an overarching picture being portrayed here, which is that the Gentiles are now a part. The Gentiles are going to be a part of Jesus' ministry. And so we want to make sure we understand that. But there's more to it than just the, hey, isn't it cool? You know, most of us in here are Gentiles. We got to be able to be saved. Awesome. We love that. That's good news. There's theology classes about this where they dig into how did the, how did the Gentiles get grafted in? Paul spends chapters in Romans. This is important stuff. But it's all stuff that's up here. Today I want to aim a little lower. I want to get to the heart. I want to get to your hearts with what this is at, saying. And honestly, that's what, that's what the... That's what the writer wants. That's what Matthew wants. So what, what are the differences here between the four and the 5,000? So let me, let me point a couple out before we get into it. Well, obviously, the first one is it's 4,000 and not 5,000, okay? You know, it's like right there. The other thing is, is all the rest of the numbers are different as well. Instead of seven loaves, it's five loaves, okay? Instead of 12 baskets left over, it's seven baskets. And even the word basket is a different word, and we'll see that in a minute. The hungry people are there for three days this time when they were only there for barely a day last time. Not only that, in a companion passage in Mark 6, it says they sat down on the green grass. Here, in the companion passage in Mark 8, it says they sat down on the bare ground. So one place they're sitting in is the spring, and the next one is more into summer. Plus, it's also in a different place, in a desert area. So this is how it's all different. So we want to see that because we're going to pull more out of this. One author says, the, reading, the, the reason the free feeding of the 4,000 was here is so that we know that not only does Jesus run a hospital, but he also runs a kitchen, and sometimes at the same time. Jesus not only heals us, but he feeds us as well. So let's get into our first point. The first point is Jesus heals all their illnesses. So that you know, there's, a, there's a, a, a telling of this in Mark as well. Mark 7, 31 through 37. Verse 29. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. He went up on the mountain and sat down there. In the Mark passage, it tells us that he is on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is kind of a, a circle, sort of. All right, Everything on the west side is Jewish, with a few cities there that have some Gentile population. Capernaum, where Jesus is home base, is right at the top. And it's literally where the Gentiles come to and the Jews come to. It's right there in the middle. Because the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee is all Gentile. There's some Jews smattered here and there, but mostly it's Gentiles. 
This area is referred to as the Decapolis, which means the ten cities. There are ten Gentile cities in this area. So this is where we're at. Jesus has been here once before. Back in Matthew 8, he heals a couple of demon-possessed men there. And so this is, not, this is not a foreign place to him. And that's one thing that really is, I never really thought of before. I mean, I, I knew how the, the Gospels had run, but now as we've been studying Matthew, I didn't realize that Jesus kind of goes back and forth between Gentile and Jew. He doesn't just spend all of his time with the Jews, which is what I thought was happening. And here we see he's transitioned and said, there's some stuff we got to deal with here, disciples. These Gentiles have a place as well. I mean, we know it's coming, Matthew 28, all the ends of the earth, that's everybody. But right here, Jesus is giving a preview of coming attractions. Note that it says Jesus sat down. We'll talk about that in a minute. Verse 30, the great crowds came to him, bringing them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they were put at his feet, and they put them at his feet. So the great crowds come to him. Now, Jesus did not announce himself on social media. There was not a, a blimp with uh, the announcement on it. There's not skywriting. There's no advertising campaign. Jesus is just going places, and word of mouth spreads. And they would have said, this is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was a common name. So they had to say of Nazareth, because Nazareth, Nazareth was not a common place. So Jesus of Nazareth is here. A lot of people would have been like, so what's the big deal? Except for, if you remember way back in Matthew 4, Jesus was healing and it talks about all the places that people came from. And one of those places was this area known as the Decapolis. And so there's people in this area who've seen Jesus heal months, maybe even a year or two before, and are now home and they hear, Jesus of Nazareth is here? Oh, we got to take my crazy Uncle Harry. He, he needs to be healed. He's, he's blind. We got to take this one and this one. And it just starts to spread. And this great crowd shows up. Now, I want to point out something here. It says they put them at his feet, all right? They put him at his feet. That's just a weird way of saying that, and it's because hidden in the Greek is a weird phrase, all right? The actual literal translation is they came and threw them at his feet. Now, some commentators have said, oh, it's because it's the dregs of society, they're like, oh, you know that, that guy that's begging down by the door? I'm so annoyed by him. Let's take him and throw him at Jesus' feet. Well, that, that's not what this means, though. What this is telling us is there is a chaos. There's an there's a, um, absolute fire being lit in these people to get them in front of Jesus. If you've ever been overseas, you know that lining up in a line is an American thing. The first time I was in Spain, I stood for 15 minutes in McDonald's. Yes, I ate at McDonald's in Spain. I stood for 15 minutes in line, but people kept cutting in front of me. And I was like, wow, these people are so rude. No, they're not rude. They just don't do lines like we do. And it was a totally different thing. This is like that, but even more. See, one of the things that happens is you, when you worship a god, you become like that god. And these Gentiles were worshiping a smattering of gods. They found temples to 30 different gods in the Decapolis area. Zeus, Artemis. You could just go through all of those characters. And they're all make-believe. And they're all temperamental. They're all judgmental. They're moody. And so the idea here is Jesus is healing and he's like our gods. We better get our people there before he changes his mind. 
right? We got to hustle them in. So this is a chaotic scene, and they're just throwing them at Jesus' feet, and he's healing here, healing here. And you know Jesus, he's not just like, dun, 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 dun. Next one's dun, dun, dun. He's not doing that. He's talking. He's making eye contact. He's laying on of hands. And so this is a chaotic scene. It reminds me of probably what the pool of Bethsaida was like in Jerusalem. You remember the story where the, the water would bubble and they, all these people who were crippled and lame would try to crawl in over each other into the water to be healed. So this shows their desperation and their need. Notice as well in verse 30 it says, and many others. He, they brought many others. Matthew's only pointing out four specific types of healings here. The lame, the blind, the crippled, and the mute. And there were lots more, right? Why, why is Matthew doing this? Well, he's teaching us something with these four. Because the next word in verse 30, the second part of 30, and he healed them. Oh, man. We've seen this over and over again, right? When it just says, and Jesus healed them. Or, and then this happened. And it's these just a few words, and we go, there's a whole, like, series of things that happened right there that I want to know about. This morning in my quiet time, I was reading, and I, I've gotten to the point where I'm reading at, about the crucifixion. And if you know anything about the crucifixion, you probably know a lot about what happens and where they nail them and how they nail them and what they put them on. But did you know our Bible just says, and they crucified him, period? That's all it says. Wait, does that mean all that stuff's not true? No, all that stuff's true, but everybody who read the Bible back then knew what those words meant. So they didn't need to elaborate on them, right? So this is one of those situations where it's like, please elaborate. What does this look like, right? Are, are the lame doing backflips? Are the, the people who've never spoken, are they singing? You know, what are they singing, you know? What's that like? What, what are the descriptions of the blind? What are they saying for the first time? So we do get a little glimpse of this in verse 31. So that the crowd wondered, when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. This idea of wonder means to marvel. It means to be amazed. It's to be no human explanation. In, Ma in Mark's version, Mark says, and they were astonished beyond measure. He doesn't have enough words to explain what they were feeling here. Astonished beyond measure. Put a pin in that. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Jesus didn't deal with these healed people like the TV healers, like the charlatans. Because here's the thing, there were healers in Jesus' day as well. And you know what they did? They asked for money, and then they would show off healings, and then they'd say they heal someone, and then they'd leave town. These are not people that come along and go, you know what your problem is? You have your legs are not the same length, so let me show you, oh, now your legs are straight. Or you've got blood pressure problems, I'm going to put my hand on you, you're healed. You've got migraines here, you know, someone's not here, I'll heal them from afar. All of these tricks that are being done by these fake healers are the same type of things that were being done in Jesus' time. And so when Jesus steps up and he's healing these things, these are not miracles done in secret. And those things do need healing. If you've got a blood pressure issue, if you've got, you know, some sort of thing that we can't see, those things need to be healed. And I'm sure Jesus healed those. But the healings that Matthew points out here are not like that, are they? They're right out in front. We need to see this rightly. Because I know that when I think of the healings, it's always like, okay, you know, it's just this or that. It's not a big deal, you know. 
But that's not what Matthew's going to let us do. And, and because there's so many fakers out there, there's so many charlatans and these fake faith healers, there's so many of them that it's colored our view of Jesus. So we got to just kind of push that aside and see what's actually here. See, these people brought family members, right? It's not some, hey, it's a random person that nobody in the community has seen. Come on up here. Are you blind? You are. Great. Now you're healed. Oh, I can see. Right? Oh, it's weird. That was the same guy you healed in the other city and in the other city and the other city. It doesn't work that way here. The people are bringing their family members. They're bringing people they know from their city who've been blind from birth, who've been mute for a very long time, who are crippled and lame. So these are not tricks. This is actually happening. And you're like, okay, wait. Okay, so I, I see what it says here, Pastor John, but I, I don't see this in the text. Let me show you. That word crippled from verse 31, the crippled healthy. This is a really awesome word. It's a Greek word. It's koulos. This word is used later in Matthew chapter 18 when Jesus is talking about it's better for you to pluck your eye out and go through life koulost than to offend God. So the word koulos has a really interesting meaning. It means to cut off. It means to go without. It means severed. It means removed. It doesn't mean, oh, just, you know, nick the eye and then move on. No, it's pop the eye out. It's better to go without the eye attached to you than it is to offend your God. So get this. And I know this is going to sound absolutely crazy because of all of our ways of viewing the healings. Jesus regrew limbs. He regrew legs. People lost legs and arms because of injuries, and they knew what amputation was. And people had had things fall on their legs and their arms. They didn't work. They lost eyes. They lost ears. And Jesus went around and regrew them. He brought them back. Now you're going, wait, oh, come on. Okay, guys, which is harder? Raising Lazarus, Lazarus or growing a new arm for somebody who lost their arm? See, we've allowed this view of these healings in our world. The charlatans have made us think, well, it's probably not that big. No, first of all, we need to not be chronological snobs, okay? These people back then knew things, and they knew a lot of things. Did they know how to use a cell phone? No. Did they know how to drive a car? They wouldn't even know what it was. But there are things that they knew better than we did. And we do. They knew about suffering. They knew about things not working. They knew how the human body worked. They knew it. And so this is not something they're just like, oh, this happens all the time. Because look what it says. They had no words to explain it. So that final phrase, he healed them, needs to be way more epic in our minds. It's not simply things we kind of sort of can see, you know. No, this is amazing. It's phenomenal. We need to not miss that, that that's what this Jesus is doing. And God is the God of healing. Notice verse 31. It says, and they glorified the God of Israel. This lets us know that this was not the Jews. They would have just said God. But instead it says the God of Israel. These are people who don't know God. And now because of what they're seeing, they're going, this God is real. We're going to glorify him. We're going to praise him. We're going to worship him. Did they convert? Did they become followers of Jesus? We don't know. But what we do know is they worshiped. They glorified God. And think about it. 
they're going back home, and they're going to go, hey, look, look, I got a new arm. Look, I have eyes that can see. Look, I can do cartwheels. This was the picture. And so this worship didn't stop right here on this hill, did it? The worship kept going. They went home to all these places throughout the Decapolis and all the other Gentile places, and they're telling the people that they encountered daily about this Jesus, and they're glorifying God. They're spreading the news about Jesus because they can't help themselves because they've been changed. They've been healed. And we'll see this later when when the disciples leave Jerusalem after the first kind of persecution happens in the book of Acts. They leave Jerusalem and they go and they find people that are followers of Jesus all over the place. And it's from this situation. Some guy who got an arm grow back is telling people about this Jesus and then a disciple comes along in God's providence a few years later and he gives them the full picture. How awesome is that? So that's the first thing we see. Jesus healed all their illnesses. Part two, Jesus heals because he's compassionate. He heals because he's compassionate. Again, Mark 8, 1 through 10 is the same passage here. Look at verse 32. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. So three days they've spent with Jesus. What were they doing for the three days? Now, I've already told you it was a chaotic healing session, right? 4,000 people brought, and we don't know. Maybe they brought 4,000 people to be healed. We don't know. But there is a point here. There is a a kind of a, a thing to note. When it says that Jesus went up and sat down, that phrase is the same phrase for any teacher. Rabbis used to sit. They were the exact opposite of what we're doing right now, right? If we wanted to be good biblical church, I should be sitting down in a nice comfy chair and you all should be standing up. That's the way teaching went in the synagogues. I'm not going to do that. Don't worry, okay? I'll take one for the team and stand up here for you all. But that's what Jesus is doing. He did that on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus wasn't standing and proclaiming. He was sitting and talking, and everybody was standing around. So I think Jesus was teaching here. And for whatever reason, Matthew doesn't include the teaching. I don't know why. But Jesus does say something interesting. He says, I have compassion on the crowd. Notice he didn't say that about their healings and all their infirmaries, even though he did have compassion. But here he says, I have so much compassion in me that not only am I going to take care of these limbs that don't work and eyes that don't work and legs that don't work, but I also care about whether you have food or not. Their rumbling stomachs are just as important to Jesus as the other issues. So what does this word compassion mean? Well, the Latin word means to suffer with. It's okay. This is one of those times where English actually does better, all right? The English word, compassion, means to suffer with, but accompanying it is a strong desire to remove the cause of the suffering. Okay. So for the Latin understanding, it just means I come alongside and I go, oh, that's too bad. There, there, right? The English version is come alongside and go, I'm suffering with you. I want to kill the thing that is hurting you. I want to destroy it. I want to annihilate it. I want it to cease to exist. I hate the thing that is causing you pain. And that's why this word is chosen here in the English. English does it well. This idea of I want to destroy the cause. Lamentations 3.22, the Lord's 
acts of mercy indeed do not end, for his compassions do not fail. His compassions do not stop. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. His compassion overwhelms everything that he does. It is all that he is. He is wise. He is loving. He is omnipotent. He is compassionate. The Bible does not just say that Jesus feels our pains, though that is true. Not just that he knows what our pains are like, that is also true. Not just that he meets us in our pain, those are amazing. That we have a God that does all those, he feels it, he knows it, he meets us there. But we also have a God who not only sympathizes with us, but he wants to step in and take away the cause of the pain. He wants to step in and destroy the pain. See, he's not a God that just comes along and gives us the anesthetic, right? The the thing that takes away the pain. No, he's a God that comes in and goes, I'm going to annihilate the cause of your pain. There is coming a day where the reason pain exists is gone, and there will be no more pain. J.C. Ryle says, It is curious and striking fact that the feeling experienced by our Lord most often on earth is compassion. There's lots of different feelings that our Lord has throughout, but compassion is the one that the Holy Spirit brings up over and over again. Because it's one thing to say that he loves, but that word doesn't quite do justice to what Jesus was here for. You can say he came and he deals with things, you know, justly. Yeah, that's it. But compassion fits right in the middle. He says, I feel your pain. I hear what you're going through. And I'm going to remove the cause of it. The compassion that Jesus has here is more amazing with our story we saw last week. The Canaanite woman, it said she had great faith. And we talked about how that's megas faith. is what that It's faith beyond what we can measure. But here, there's no examples of faith other than asking for someone to be healed. There's no examples of anyone saying Jesus is the Messiah but yet he's compassionate. Not only that, he's really compassionate to his disciples, which is, which is awesome because they mess up over and over again. And it's only going to get worse. Chapters 16, 17, and 20, they continually mess up and miss the point. But yet Jesus is compassionate. Let's look at that. Verse 33. The disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Now, I got, you got to go, what? Okay, come on, guys. Didn't this just happen a few chapters ago? What, what is going on here? Now, granted, it's probably been more like a few months. Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't really stop the problem, right? Some people have said, well, this is the disciples, you know, just being dumb, and they're just, you know, they're them. Others have said, well, you know, maybe eh, there's some other explanation. Uh, I heard another guy who's like, maybe they're going, wait, is he going to do it again? Hey, Jesus, you know, we don't have any food. There's no, how, there's no fast food around here. What are you going to do, Jesus? I mean, so there, we don't have any tone here. We don't know what the disciples are thinking. We know that they, they may have forgotten. They may not. But we do know there's a few things kind of going on here that I want to kind of make sure we see. The first one is a theological issue. The disciples are probably, and we know they, not probably, they are having a problem with the fact that the Gentiles look like they're being allowed in. They're going, it's one thing for you to come and heal them. Because up to this point, all the Gentiles have been healed. That's it. Nothing else. And so the the disciples got, you know, the feeding of the 5,000. It made sense. They got done. There were 12 baskets. 
12 tribes of Israel. Hey, okay, so this is, this is a preview of that banquet that the Messiah is going to have. And the disciples got that. They're like, yes, this is a preview. That's right, because we're a part of Israel. Awesome. But if Jesus does the same thing for the Gentiles, wait, you're saying Gentiles can be a part of Israel? That can't be right. No, no, no. There's no way he's going to feed these people like he did before. So that could be part of it. I think another possibility, and I think this one is probably what we would be like, is just forgetfulness. It's easy to forget God's goodness, isn't it? I mean, the big things we get, right? If something amazing happens and we have one of us, praise the Lord, that he still heals people today, and you get this diagnosis, and then we pray, and a few months later, the Lord goes, boom, and it's gone. Praise the Lord. We'll remember those. But did you know, in those few months, the Lord was doing things every single day, over and over and over again, and good to us. And the problem is, is we forget those things. We must remind ourselves. I have a few a friends of mine, when they got married, they, they, they bought this, I think, I don't know if somebody gave it to them, I don't remember, but they have this book that they have on their coffee table. And in it, they write down every single time the Lord does anything to them. Some of them are big. Oh, we you know, had a car accident, nobody got hurt. Praise the Lord. Other times it was I, was, I was late to work and somehow my drive that takes 20 minutes only took seven and I got out there on time. Praise the Lord. Little things, big things, and they just write them down. And the reason they do that is because they forget. And isn't this what we see with the story of Israel, which is really our story? Countless times God does something and they forget. Now, Israel started getting this, right? They started making, remember the piles of the 12 stones, and they had feasts and different things like that to remember. We need to remember what the Lord has done. We need to remind ourselves, even if it's something that is small or if it's something that's big, even if it's somebody else's, we need to know those things. And many of you have been believers for a very long time, and you've got hundreds of thousands of things the Lord has done. And we've forgotten most of them, but let's remember those and remind ourselves of those. So share them with each other. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit on the ground, see they'd been standing, he'd been teaching them. He took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks, he broke them, gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Again, the disciples are brought in, and they're the ones that are distributing the miracle. Bread has some significance in the Bible. There's three main things we see about bread. First of all, bread is the result of the fall, okay? The having to make bread with your hands and having to put it together. You had to do something to make it. It didn't just appear. That work, that harder work, I mean, anybody who's made bread knows that it's kind of, sometimes it's good, sometimes not so good. It's work. That's the first thing that bread shows us. Second thing is bread is a thing that's used for fellowship. Throughout the Bible, it's a way of showing hospitality. They would have bread set aside for if someone happened to drop by. Abraham uses bread several times for the three visitors that visit him in Genesis 18 when he meets with Melchizedek. Jewish tradition would have a prayer before each uh, meal that would say, Blessed art thou, O Lord God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. So bread is a fellowship. We're breaking bread together. We still use that phrase, breaking bread. It means fellowship. But the third is that bread signifies the covenant with God. Every single day, there were grain offerings in the temple, and there was bread on the altar as a part of the Old Testament and a part of, well, Jesus was in before the temple was destroyed and all that was a part of the New Testament 
offerings. It was a symbol of a covenant. We see this symbol replayed in communion, where we take the bread, which represents Jesus' body. So all three of these things are being trampled on here with this feeding. The Gentiles, they haven't done any work for this food. Okay, that's not their food. They haven't even paid money for it, which would be a way of giving work. Second, Gentiles and, and Jews don't fellowship. They don't, they're not hospitable towards each other. And so the idea of breaking bread with Gentiles is unheard of. And then thirdly, like we talked about a second ago, does this really mean that Gentiles are a part of the covenant people? They can be a part? How does that work? And so all of this is percolating, and then as Matthew's writing this, he knows the end of the story. He knows that Jesus calls himself the bread of life, and that everyone is to take of him. And the disciples get this later, but it takes a little bit of work, but eventually they get it. Verse 37, and they all ate and were satisfied. That means filled to overflowing. They were full. Then they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Again, seven baskets instead of the 12. Now, when the, when the 12 baskets with the 5,000, the, the word for basket is a Jewish word, which means a small knapsack. So think of like a small backpack or one of those stringed backpacks that kids put their shoes in. That, that's what this is. And, and the reason they used that was because Jewish people knew that they didn't want their food touching other people's food because it might be unclean. Remember, we talked about that a few weeks ago. And so the small bags, the 12 bags, would have been 12 small bags for each of the disciples to have bread left over. Awesome, right? All of Israel. That's what the symbol is there. This word for basket is not that. This is, we're talking about laundry hamper, okay? The word that is used here is the word that was used for when the apostle Paul was let down out of the city of Damascus. So it's got to be big enough for Paul to fit in. That's how many baskets, that's how big these baskets are. And so they're, they're full. The number seven signifies completion, signifies the fullness of everything. So this is the final puzzle piece here. The disciples are probably still going, oh man, the Gentiles really can't be in. And then they count up the baskets and they're like, oh, seven. Well, what do you think that means? Now we don't know if Jesus answered that for them or if they even got it. We know later on they got it. Paul talks about this at length in Romans. First Timothy, he says, for it is this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially to those who believe. See, not everyone is saved, but everyone is saved without distinction. Everyone is saved no matter who they are. And this is good news for us, not just because we're Gentiles in the room. Maybe some of you have some Jewish ancestry. That's not it. The, the thing is, there is nothing that discounts you from being someone who could be saved. Not your sex, not your gender, not your age, not your, your political affiliation, not your height, weight, any of that. Not the sins you are currently committing, not the sins you have committed. You are not the wrong kind of person to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And that is the good news. Because there's lots of people out there that go, well, I'm, just, I, I'm not one of those church people. I, I can't be, I'm not the right kind of person to follow Jesus. And the answer is everyone is the right person, wrong person to follow Jesus, but he takes us all in, right? His invitation is open to everyone. This is the true equality that our world is longing for, but is missing that's right in front of them. Jesus has come to all outsiders because we're all outside. 
Verse 38, those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. That means it was probably more like 16,000 to 25,000 people there. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went across the Sea of Galilee to the region of Magdan. Jesus' mercy is so deep, we will never find the bottom of it. Jesus' compassion brings us hope because he feels our pain. Not only that, but he wants to alleviate it. Now, if we stopped right here, we've, we've done our due diligence. We've hit every portion of the text. But there's more here. There's some deeper magic at work in this text. So if we stop right now, it's just, hey, cool story. You know, Jesus healed some people. Jesus had compassion. That's awesome. But the, that's not the way Jesus works, is it? He's not just thinking about what's right in front of him. Now, granted, he is overwhelmed with compassion, and his focus, because he is God, he can focus 100% on what's right in front of him. But he's also focusing 100% on what comes next in the next 2,000 years. And so this is here on purpose, and I believe there's a purpose for us today in this passage that speaks right into our lives in 2023. Let's see if we can see it. Jesus can heal our illness. You ever ask yourself, why, why did Jesus perform healing miracles? Why did he do it? Was it to show that he was God? Oh, yeah, absolutely. He tells us that. Yes, it's to show that he's God. But that's not all. Is it because he's love? Oh, yeah. And that's some of the best news in the world. Our God is a God of love. But there's more. Is it because he's compassionate? Oh, yeah, we just saw that. But there's so, so so much more. You know, you think about the fact that these people went through huge amount of effort to get people to Jesus' feet. Yeah, they threw them at their feet and they're trying to sneak in before the next person. But think about how much effort they went through to get people there, right? There's no Uber. There's no life flight. There's no, I mean, the chances that they might have had a cart of some sort, they probably are pulling it. But think about people that you know who cannot move, who have all sorts of issues with body. There's no blind, there's no guide dogs for the blind. There's none of that. There's not even necessarily great roads. This area didn't have the Roman roads yet. So they're going over hill and dale to get to Jesus. How much effort did they put into their physical healing? How much did they put into their spiritual healing? Doesn't seem like much. Now, Jesus brought that out in his teaching, I'm sure. These healings that we see here are not just to show us that Jesus is Lord over all, but that he can cure all of the diseases that ail us. The physical healings of Jesus are meant to point us to something greater. So in order to get this, we got to rewind all the way back to the beginning. So we'll go all the way back to Genesis. Adam and Eve are created. They're hanging out in the garden in the east of Eden. They're hanging out there. They're walking with God. And they get tempted. And when they get tempted, that's when two things happen. Sin enters the world. Okay, that's the first thing. Now, sin is the ultimate enemy. Now, when I say that, sin is not a thing. It's, it's not, I'm sorry, it's not a person. It's not a who. It's a, it's a what. But sin is the ultimate enemy. It's the big baddie at the end of the movie. It's Thanos. It's Vader. It's Sauron. All combined. But even more so to make those guys look like bunnies. That's how bad sin is. Sin is the ultimate enemy. So incredibly bad. So that's the first thing that happens at the fall. Now God in his mercy 
goes to Adam and Eve and says, you guys are in sin. I'm not going to let you live forever. So because of your sin, I'm going to need to allow you to die. And that leads to the second thing that happened at the fall, which was death. And all the stuff leading up to it, all the suffering, all the pain, all of that comes from the fall. So we've got these two enemies at the fall. We've got sin and damnation and separation from God, and we've got pain, death, suffering, all of that. Now, it's interesting. In our world, we can mitigate some of that suffering, can't we? We've done a good job. We've stopped certain types of deaths, but we cannot stop it ultimately. So when we, when we feel pain, we want it to go away. We want to find the cure. If we knew of someone who could heal us and was 100% of the time able to heal, we would visit them instantly. We wouldn't hesitate to pay them whatever they asked. But the problem is, is that we forget that our bodies, while being diseased and dying and falling apart and not working, are infinitesimal compared to how rotten our souls are. Not only that, but we're forgetting that this life is a limited life. Whereas the life to come is an unlimited life. How, how many people would walk 100 miles to have their soul saved in our world today? It's so far from anybody's attention, it, it, it's just not even on their radar. Our souls are afflicted with a deep-seated and far more complicated ailment than anything our flesh could ever have. We must be healed. So is there any hope for our souls? Well, actually, yes. See, this is why Jesus came. He came to fix the two problems that came from the fall. He came to defeat the ultimate bad guy in sin, and he came to do away with death. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's taking all of these infirmaries, including death, like Lazarus, and he says, I'm going to show you I can heal all of these so that you know I can deal with what is the most important. We saw this before in Matthew, and I know that your minds have already gone there, but let's look there anyways. Matthew 9, and behold, some people brought a paralytic, paralytic to him, Jesus, lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to him, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. He said, your sins are healed. See, Jesus works these miracles that nobody on earth could ever do. Arms growing back, legs growing back, eyes popping into sockets, ears coming out of nowhere, dead coming to life. He does all of these for one reason, so that you know he can take care of the ultimate baddie, that the, the one that is subjugating all of us, Worse than the worst dictators all combined. That baddie, sin, will be destroyed. That's why he's here. He's not just here to anesthetize us from all the suffering in this life. He's coming along. He's killing the cause. He's destroying the cause. I mean, that's an amen moment right there, isn't it? Because the cause dying is what allows us to live. So do we feel this? 
I mean, it's easy for us to focus so much on the physical. I mean, if something hurts, we want to fix it. If something's not working, we, we go there. If someone is hurting, if someone is dying, it, it draws our attention. But are we getting our eyes to the right thing, which is the spiritual aspect of it? People travel all over the place to get cures, don't they? I read of some, some super wealthy uh, millionaires who are trying to beam their consciousness into computers so that they can live forever. They're spending billions of dollars on that. Have they spent even a moment thinking about their soul? Jesus is saying, I can heal your body. That proves I can take care of your soul. There's no disease. There's no healing that is too hard for me. Remember how easy he did it, right? And many more, it just says. Matthew just says, there were lots more. I didn't cover them all. His main purpose, though, is to come and to heal our souls. There is no ailment of the heart that he cannot cure. There's no spiritual complaint that he cannot overcome. He, cannot, he, he can destroy every single sin, every single thing that enslaves us. He has the power to do that. Because here's the thing, miracles still happen. Many of you have had healing miracles with the Lord. We've prayed and so on, and it's been a physical healing. But let me tell you, miracles happen every single day. I'm not starting a healing ministry. I'm not going to call you up here and lay hands on you. That's not what I'm saying. Because I'm not qualified. What I'm saying is healings happen every single day. Because get this, you want proof that miracles still happen every day? Every single one of you that's a believer, you're a miracle. Do you get that? Do you get that, that you're a miracle? You were dead in your sins. Dead things don't bring themselves to life. Dead things don't come back to life. Just like Lazarus, you're in the grave and you stinketh. And yet, you were brought back to life. So if you're here today, and you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you've submitted to his ownership of your life, you are a walking, talking miracle. You are not an accident. You didn't bring this about. It's a miracle just the same as the guy who walks up with no arm, and Jesus goes, would you like an arm? And the guy goes, yeah, and it grows back. Miracle, you are that. Your heart of stone has been taken out and you have a heart of flesh. So now what do we do with all of this information? Well, the first thing I want you to do is ask yourself, have I experienced that miracle in my soul? Have I experienced that? I've given you a picture of what it was like when Jesus was healing those people who had things that were cut off and the amazement of that. Have you felt that? Maybe you prayed a prayer, maybe you made a commitment, maybe you thought, hey, I was born into a Christian family, therefore I'm a Christian. Then this is not what we're talking about here. Remember those words I told you to put a pin in? Astonished beyond measure, wondered. If there's no awe over that moment when you went from life to death, now's the time to go to life to death and feel that. It needs to be one of those moments that no one has to remind you it happened. It's one of those moments that you will never forget. The man and women who had body parts regrown never forgot that moment. Can you imagine being around those people? You probably would have gotten annoyed with them, right? You're sitting there. You're hanging out in one of the cities of the Decapolis, and you're sitting with your friend who just had the arm healed. And goes, hey, did I ever tell you the story about what Jesus did? Yes, you did. Well, did I tell you what he said? Yeah, he said, da, 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 da. 
Well, did I tell you what he looked like? Boy, have I told your sister yet? How about your mom? Come on. You you just, it's, it's who you are. It just spills out of you. It's so great a story, you never get past it. Why have we gotten past our salvations? Why? Why is our salvation something that we just kind of put on the shelf and we set over there? Why is it something we've gotten past? Remember. Remember. Let this passage today help you remember where you were and where the Lord brought you out of. So if you're here today and you've experienced this, why is it not what you lead with in everything? They would be like, well, I don't want to offend anybody, right? So I'm going to go and I'm going to go to the store and and I don't want people to be offended by Jesus. So I'm going to hide my arm behind my back and pretend that I'm still amputated, an amputee, and I'm going to stand up and, oh, yeah, yeah, everything's going great, everything's fine. No, you'd be like, hey, I saw you once. You waited on me at, 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 at Sherry's. I'm going to tell you about my new arm. I'm going to tell you about my Jesus. Folks, I, 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 I don't want to guilt trip you on this, okay? I'm not standing up here going, shame on you. You should be talking about Jesus. That's not it. No, I want you guys to not worry about my words, and I want you to go, have I felt that? Have I felt that in my life? Have I come from death to life? That's so far different. And if you haven't felt that right now, Lord, help me to feel that. Save me. And if I've forgotten, help me to say that. Help me to see it. Help me to let it be who I am. Our identity is found in Jesus Christ. See the amazement. Only when we see what Jesus has done will it rightly just come out. You guys don't need programs. You don't need to memorize a script to tell people about Jesus. You just need to be so in love with Jesus, it just comes out everywhere you go. That's who we have to be. That's what we need to be like. 